0: The internet and welcome to a very different episode of Byzantium and Friends. A spooky episode. This is an episode that originally I had thought of posting on Halloween this year. Uh, by the time I had the idea it was too late to do that and besides then I thought it would be interesting to post this on the very last day of 2020 which is when I am recording this. It is a proper send-off to this horrific year with a bunch of horror stories taken directly from Byzantine sources. So what are we dealing with here? In my ongoing reading of Byzantine sources, I will occasionally jot down things that seem interesting to me from one perspective or another. And one file that I found was growing over the years was references to horror stories or horror-like stories in Byzantine texts or stories that with a little bit of tweaking or from a different perspective could be cast as a horror story. And during the first uh, month of uh, the lockdown this year in the spring, I c- couldn't concentrate very well on my own work and I decided that I would rewrite some of those stories to make them you know, more modern and more approachable to modern readers. I actually got really into it and spent a few weeks writing them up. So these are short stories that are adapted from Byzantine sources. Uh, some are just direct translations, like the story itself in its original form is perfectly sufficient. In some cases, I've had to kind of rewrite them or tweak them or sort of massage them a little bit or write them from a different perspective uh, in order to get the point across. Read aloud, they are between one and nine minutes long, so the present collection that you're about to hear contains about an hour and a half of this kind of material. Now since i'm not good at dramatic reading i outsourced uh, these stories to colleagues and uh, students and friends uh, who volunteered to read them and as you will see they did an absolutely fantastic job with them Uh, and i i really hope that you enjoy them as much as uh, i did my sincerest thanks for everybody who stepped up to read a story Uh, this is how i managed to compiled an hour and a half's worth of Byzantine tales of horror and the macabre. So without any further introduction, enjoy and reflect (laughs) on the year that's passed and let's hope that uh, that if I do anything similar next year uh, it will be in a more (laughs) a joyous tone and a happier genre.
1: Questions for a Woman Who Killed and Ate Her Mother and Daughter Read by Miranda Amy The legal review panel of the Great Church of Hagia Sophia heard the confession of the woman Maria from the district of Kibraetai, who, in the time of famine, harsh winter, and barbarian invasion, was reduced to starvation. In desperation, she killed and ate many unclean animals, the bodies of dead people, and finally, she killed and ate her own mother and daughter too. She begged to be forgiven on the grounds of dire necessity. Her case was referred to the Holy Synod, as the review panel felt unable to deal with a case so distressing and perverse, except for eating the unclean animals, but it made no sense to deal with that separately. I, Andronicus, the chair of the review panel, jotted down the following questions as I heard her confession. I had a great curiosity to know the answers, but did not feel appropriate to speak them aloud, as the woman was sobbing and my fellow panelists were in shock, their hearts bleeding and their hairs on end. This was not my reaction. Her confession made me wonder instead about aspects of her story that she did not disclose, and I also realized with a shock that I did not know what kind of story it was. If I were to write it out in the form of a narrative, what style would be appropriate to it? What rhetorical conventions would I use? And how might the woman's character be fleshed out, as it were? Specifically, the story should not leave gaps. The narrative should illuminate every part of the story, especially those about which one is curious. Let's start at the beginning. She said that she started by eating lizards, snakes, mices, turtles, and frogs. But she was not too disgusted to eat them? I wish she had described her hunger in greater detail. That might have explained how she was able to look at these hard, unclean animals as food, to prepare them for the meal, and then to keep them down in her stomach after she had eaten them. Did not the knowledge of having a mouse in your belly cause her to throw up? Besides, what recipe did she follow? It is not as though any of us is taught how to prepare such food. Did she cook them or eat them raw? And if cooked them, in a stew or grilled? Did she eat parts of them or all of them? How does one eat snake scales? or the heads? And aren't snakes poisonous? Did she think about that? Or are some parts poisonous and others not? How did she know the difference? My questions were even more gruesome when it came to the killing of her mother and daughter. Did she kill them in their sleep, or how? How did she not faint when applying the butcher's knife to the limbs of her mother and daughter, to dismember them and prepare them for cooking? Did she imagine that she was slaughtering a lamb, like for Easter? Did she remove their skin and entrails? What did she do with them, or with the skulls? When she sank her teeth into their flesh, did she think about what she was doing, and perhaps pause briefly? What thought, then, helped her return to the chewing? Did she realize that she was eating the snakes and mice all over again, assuming that she had previously fed them to her mother and daughter? So in her belly was a mouse that had been in the belly of her mother, a mouse that had come from the belly of its own mother. The scope for paradox and reversal here is dizzying. This woman had come from her mother's womb, but now the mother found herself in her daughter's belly. More deliciously ironic is that the daughter had come from this woman's womb, and now found herself there again, only coming down from above, having first been chewed and swallowed. The second set of questions that occurred to me were literary. Specifically, what type of story was this? I immediately thought of the old myths. We hear that Cronus ate his children before Zeus set them free. But the stories about the gods are not tragic, because there are no consequences for the gods. Poseidon can be swallowed by his father, but then emerge from him an adult, fully formed, and go on to rule the seas. No one wishes to weep for the gods when they eat, maim, or attack one another you know they will always be okay, so there's nothing at stake for them, or for the listener. But this story is worthy of a lament, or a tragedy. The same goes for the stories of monsters. The Cyclops, for example, is a horrendous beast that induces similar fear and loathing, and it ate Odysseus' companions too, but it did not eat its own mother and children. That feature of our story imparts a kind of moral horror that is lacking from the tales of beasts and monsters. There is the story of Thyestes, the king of Mycenae who ate his own sons, but he did not know he was eating them. It was his brother who had killed them and served them up to their father at a feast. Another king of Mycenae, Agamemnon, killed his daughter Iphigenia in order to placate the winds, but he did not eat her. So too Jephthah in the Book of Judges. He killed his daughter, but did not eat her. Hmm. These are not good parallels. Arguably, the closest case that I can recall is that of yet another woman named Maria. She cooked and then half ate her infant son during the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans, as told in the history of Josephus. This is far more satisfactory than the others. Josephus ably represents the depths of her despair and her hunger pangs and gives her a good speech be now my food, etc., where she explains to her son what she is about to do. Of course, he cannot understand her, and therefore she is really talking to herself. He also ably represents the horror of the guards who discover her foul deed, and how they left her house trembling. It also has the advantage of being a true story, a horror of true history, and told well by a master writer and yet he sticks to the facts of the case and does not elaborate on the tragic aspects. I wonder, therefore, if we might be lacking a genre here, one that combines the extraordinary aspects of mythology with the manner of tragedy, like the story of Medea. It would use the narrative devices of fiction, tragedy, and the novel in order to convey the deep pathos of true stories about mortal people who commit horrific acts out of despair, not cold calculation. It would focus on the twisting of their cruel thoughts, how they arrive at them from ordinary beginnings, along with the horror experienced by all the protagonists, not just the outward appearance of the events. What kind of writing would that be?
2: INCISIVE CURIOSITY Read by Kelsey Powell Apollo, a hermit at Scytis in Egypt, was a shepherd in his previous life. One day he had seen a pregnant woman working in the fields, and the devil put this thought into his mind. I want to see how the infant lies in her womb. He snuck up on her and hit her on the head with a rock. Using his knife, he carefully cut the skin all around her belly into the shape of a flap. But before pulling it away, he shut his eyes tightly and froze in place. But his morbid curiosity got the better of him. He pulled the flap away and opened his eyes wide to see. And he saw. It was all he could have wanted and more. Never in his life had he seen anything as perfect. But then, in an instant, the devil left him. In place of wonder and fascination, he was left with disgust and crushing guilt. He went off to live in a cave alone, and for many years he prayed there, day and night, saying only, "'I have sinned against you, O Lord. Do forgive me, so that I may enjoy a little peace of mind.' And he became convinced that God had forgiven him all his sins, even the death of the woman. But about the death of the infant he was unsure. Eventually, one of the elders there told him that, "'God has forgiven you for that too,' but leaves you in grief and painful remorse because it is good for your soul.
3: Desire of the Flesh Read by Brian Swain Father Elijah was a hermit who wandered around the valley of the River Jordan. He was one of those who are called grazers, who roamed the plains and forests, and gathered up fruits and nuts, rejecting the use of shelter and fire. They cover up only the bare essentials, and feed off the earth like wild animals. Over time, their minds become incompatible with those of other people, and they often flee at the sight of them. Here is the story that he told us when we finally managed to corner him in a cave well, you can see the life that I lead. I had lived this way for many years, managing to remove all worldly thoughts from my mind, when one day a woman approached me as I sat beneath a tree. A woman! I had not thought of women in so many years, I had quite forgotten that they even existed. I couldn't move or speak, I was so shocked. It was the peak of the midday sun, and it was hard to focus on her for the shimmer of the heat. She then began to speak, a sound I had not heard in so long, living as I had been among the beasts. "'Father,' she said, "'I, too, follow the same way of life as you, as you can clearly see. I have, however, run out of water, and the heat is unbearable. Could I impose upon your charity and ask you to share some of your water with me. All I could manage was to nod feebly. She picked up my bulging flask and gently began to pour it into hers. It was only later that I realized how intently I watched her every motion, the ripples that played across the muscles of her arms. The twists and turns of her hips and shoulders as she bent over. Finally, she left, thanking me. It took me a long time to come to my senses. I felt as if an entire phase of my life had suddenly come to an end, and a new one had begun. One that was far more troubled and complicated. I had Known women in my past life, and it all came rushing back to me suddenly. The hot breath of passion. The feel of smooth skin in my hands. The taste of another body, heaving, sweaty. All this time it was in me after all. I had not forgotten anything. I had mastered nothing. I had merely looked away. I had pared down my life to a miserable sliver and looked away from anything that wasn't in the desert. But now, it was there too. And I knew where to find her. I had to find her. The lust was too strong in me. I needed those memories that now flooded my mind to become flesh and blood again. I set off to find her, in the fiery heat of the day, across the burning stones of the desert. I had found unity of purpose again. So focused was I my desire, that at first I did not notice the gradual contraction of my field of vision. Soon I could only see directly in front of me, and was getting more light-headed with every step. Then, suddenly, I fell into a pit which I had failed to see— I landed softly with a wet thud, but when I looked up, I experienced another foul shock. The pit was full of dead bodies of people, rotting, burst open, decomposing. The acrid and foul stench was overpowering, and I threw up the meager contents of my stomach. When I was done heaving, I noticed a venerable old man sitting on the edge of the pit. Look, he said, that is the body of a woman and that of a man. You desire flesh. Here it is. Satisfy yourself. But remember what you are giving up in exchange. How many years of toil in return for how little pleasure. I scrambled out of the pit and crawled away from the horrific stench the old man came over and helped me to my feet he smiled and sent me off back to my tree one shock had countered another the dangerous moment had passed
4: The Mummy, read by Marian Cruz. Now it came to pass that, in the year 335 of the Martyrs, 619 AD, God brought the Persians into Egypt to punish us for our sins. Father Pesentius, the bishop of Coptus, thereupon removed himself into the mountains and sought refuge among the caves, and I went with him as his servant. He found a secret place in which to hide, and he showed it to me, so that I could bring him a little food and water on the Sabbath once a week. We walked for a few miles through the empty hills, until the path we were on led up to a doorway carved out of the living face of the rock. Inside was a large square chamber, hewn out of the rock, with six columns rising up to its tall roof. But that is not what grabbed my attention. Carefully arranged, all about the interior space, were many mummies. And the room had that rich, sweet smell that mummies exude from all the spices that they stuff into them. For the next few hours, we dragged the sarcophagi to one side of the chamber and piled them up there so that Father Pesentios could have more room. We opened up one of them out of curiosity and found that it was wrapped in a shroud made entirely of silk. The fingers and toes were individually wrapped. He had been a tall man. How long ago did they die, my father wondered. Only God knows, I replied. Go now, my son, he said. Sit in your monastery and pray. Come here on the Sabbath with my food and water, as I instructed you. As I was leaving, I noticed that a papyrus roll had been affixed to one of the columns. I gave it to my father, and he found written on it the names of all the people who had been buried in that place. I put it back in its place and left. On the first Sabbath, I went to my father, bearing his food and water for the week to come. But when I reached the doorway, I heard someone inside who was weeping and beseeching my father in a dry, hoarse voice, and he was speaking in an old form of the language.
5: O my lord and father, I beg you to pray unto the lord that I may be delivered from this torment. I cannot bear amenti anymore.
4: I realized with a shock that it was one of the mummies. Amenti is what they used to call the realm of the dead. I was curious to hear more, but too afraid to enter, so I sat down outside the door to listen. Who were your parents? asked my father Pisentius. And whom did they worship? My father was named Agriculus, and my mother Eustathia. They worshipped the one in the waters, that is, Poseidon. Did you not know that Christ had come into
6: the world?
5: No, father. My parents. me. Woe that I was born too soon! Why did the womb of my mother not also become my tomb? But verily I was born, and did live my life, and was about to die. And when I lay dying I saw them coming, those who were called Cosmocratores, the rulers of the world, and they did list all my sins to my face. They held sharp iron knives, which they drove into my sides while they sank their pointed teeth into me. And then I saw Thanatos before me, and the vicious rulers tore my soul out from my body. They bound my soul to the belly of a huge black horse, and it took me straight to Amenti. There is the woe of every sinner such as myself who was born for evil into the world. O my father, They delivered me into the cruel hands of the tormentors, who have all different forms, how many of them there were, and when they had tortured me for a while they cast me into the outer darkness, where I saw a vast canyon, and it was filled with reptiles and countless other swarming, creeping things like snakes with seven heads and black scorpions.
4: And from the time that you died until today, you have known no respite?
5: is indeed compassionate,
4: and he will show you mercy. Go now, lie down in your place over there, and you will sleep until the day of resurrection, when all men shall rise up, and you will then rise up with them. And then, as God is my witness, I saw the mummy walk across the stone chamber and lie back down into its sarcophagus. I cried out in spite of myself and gave glory unto God. My father then noticed me and said, John, have you been here a long time? did you see someone speaking to me? No, I said, I arrived just now. You are lying, John. You have heard and you have seen, but take care. If you tell any person during my lifetime what happened here today, you will be cast out from among God's elect. And I have obeyed that order and never told a soul.
1: The Murderer Who Gave Himself Up, read by Miranda Amy. One day, a bandit came to Father Zosimos, the Sicilian at the Lavra of Firminos, on the way to Jerusalem, and begged him, For the love of God, make me a monk. I have killed so many people, I can't bear the guilt anymore. Please make me a monk so that I stop all this evil doing for the rest of my life. Zosimos admitted him as an apprentice and gave him his basic instructions along with the monastic habit. But after a few days, the elder had second thoughts. He told his new monk, Trust me, my child, you cannot stay here. The governor will inevitably hear about you and come to arrest you. Or some of your past victims or accomplices will come by and recognize you, and there will be trouble. You may even be killed." I will take you to a monastic community that is far away from here. And so he took him to the community of Father Dorotheos, which is near Gaza. The former bandit spent nine years there. He memorized the entire Psalter and meticulously adhered to the monastic life. But then he went back to the Lavra of Firminos and told his former elder, Father, please forgive me. Give me back my secular clothes and take back the monastic habit. The elder was distressed. Why are you doing this, my child, he asked. Father, I have spent nine years in that community. I have fasted as much as I could bear. I have renounced worldly desire and I have obeyed my elders without question. I live in fear of God and I hope that he has pardoned my many sins. And yet, after about a year in the community, I I began to see a child standing in the fields outside looking in my direction, but no one else seemed to notice him. A bit later, I saw him standing in the courtyard by the church, and I saw that he was covered in blood. I ran away in fear, but then remembered the tales of the fearsome demons whom great men of the desert encountered after days without sleep and food. My resolve was being tested, and I vowed to endure the assault. A few days later, I entered the refectory and saw the child standing right there. "'Why did you murder me?' he said, and I cried out in terror and ran away, shocking my brothers, who saw only my strange behavior. I had recognized this child as one of those whom I had killed in the past. Then I began to see him in the church and in my cell, and during my devotions, repeatedly asking me the same question. Only I can see him. He is the first thing I see when I wake up from my sleep, and I see him even in my dreams.' He is here with me now, father, and that is why I need to go. Yes, said Zosimos, alarmed and looking wildly from side to side. You should go. Where do you have in mind? Father, I must die for that child. It is the only way. He donned his old clothes and left the Lavra. He went down to Diaspolis, surrendered himself to the governor there, and confessed. He was beheaded the next day. As he was being led to the place of his execution, the bandit saw a monk following along with a look of intense curiosity, anticipating the decapitation with a great deal of fascination. Brother, the bandit asked him, have you no cell in which to pray or occupation to keep you busy? Why are you here? Indeed, I do have a cell, answered the monk, but you see, I am a sinful, negligent monk. I thought that, if I came to see how you die." Your pain and anguish might help me mend my ways and make me a better monk.
7: Drawn and Quartered, read by Katie Rask. There was an actor named Gynas, Phoenicia. He used to perform an act that made fun of the Virgin, the mother of God. Part of it involved a cuckolded Joseph, comically oblivious to his wife's affair. His friends at the workshop would tease him. Hey, Joseph, has God been around lately? Do you want me to help out with your virgin bride? And the like. One night, the virgin appeared to Gynos and asked him, What have I ever done to you that you mock me? so much in front of so many people. My dear woman, he said, it takes a special kind of arrogance to deliver offspring that is not the son of your husband and yet to insist on being addressed as both holy and a virgin. And what exactly was your contribution to this whole story? As far as I can tell, Your son received all his divinity from his father. You were just a vessel that he temporarily occupied, a woman no different than others, and with less of a claim to virtue as I see it. Gynas continued to perform his skit. The Virgin, therefore, appeared to him again one day as he was taking his midday nap. Without saying a word, she so gently traced her finger across the joints where his arms and legs met his torso. When Guinness awoke, he realized to his horror that all four of his limbs had been amputated and lay next to him in the bed. There was no blood. The wounds had already healed, leaving him lying there like the stump of a tree trunk. From which all the branches had been pruned. He spent the rest of his life making a public example of himself. This was the reward that anyone might expect from blasphemy. He did this out of love for his fellow man to prevent any others from suffering the same fate.
8: Address, read by Brandon Bourgeois. I have this tale on the authority of my friend Georgios, a nobleman of Georgian descent, who is about the same age and one with whom I went to school. He is an absolutely trustworthy fellow, and later, He joined the ranks of the monastic life, revealing the extent of his virtue. He eventually became abbot of his monastery, a place that had once belonged to my mother. I trust his words implicitly. He told me that one day he went to a neighboring monastery in order to visit the abbot who was a close acquaintance of his, and also to teach a seminar to the monks on overcoming listlessness, a debilitating form of depression that afflicts many of them, as you know. The abbot there had a reputation as a spiritual man, endowed with many virtues. You could see it in his grave visage and solemn walk, and the respectful way in which everyone spoke with him. Well, this man made Giorgio most welcome, and lavished every form of hospitality on him, as was only appropriate, of course, among fellow abbots. In a show of humility, he even gave him his own room, and bed on which to sleep. The sun was now setting and casting its golden rays horizontally through the window. Giorgio said his evening prayers and then lay down on the bed. And then what he saw struck terror into his heart. Now, keep in mind that sleep had not overtaken him. His eyes were wide open, and he was fully alert. Here, then, is what he saw. A multitude of men flew into the room. They were black in color, and all seemed angry and hostile. In fact, they were not exactly men, but beasts in human form. They were not walking, but flying, with their hideous wings like a murder of crows, fallen upon the carcass of a dead animal, crowding about him on his bed in a flurry of flying legs, arms, and wings. But then the first one to enter turned to the rest and said, This is not him, but a different one. Within the blink of an eye, they flew out the window and disappeared. As you can imagine, Georgios was badly shaken by his experience, and he wondered what this meant. He knew that these were hostile powers, and that they were drawn to sin, like scavengers are drawn to corpses. He could not sleep for the rest of the night. The next day he spoke about it to other monks discreetly, trying to understand his experience. None of them could talk to him, and they averted their gaze from his eyes, except one monk, who revealed to him that their abbot was in the habit of bringing a woman to his rooms at night, and then sending her away in the morning. The demons had not come for him. Let this be a lesson for us, that we cannot serve two masters at one.
9: of the sea read by Marvesavas I'm the captain of the merchant ship Round Eye, based out of Tyre, in Phoenicia, and the following is the most extraordinary thing that has happened to me in forty years of sailing the eastern sea lanes. One day I set out from Tyre with passengers on board when the ship suddenly froze in its place and wouldn't move despite the wind. We were too far out from Tyre to swim back, but near enough that we could see the city. I couldn't understand what was going on. The other ships were clearly being propelled by the winds to their destinations. I could recognize some of them, and knew that they were going to Constantinople or Alexandria with the wind in their sails and their prow cutting through the waves. But we alone were making no headway. It was the darndest thing I had ever seen. At first, I thought it may have to do with the water currents, some odd conjunction of deep currents at the precise spot where we stood that was keeping us fixed in place. But those don't last long. This one kept us there for one, then for two, and then for three days with no end in sight. The crew and passengers began to exhibit worry and even fear. After all, we were eating our supplies earlier in the voyage than anticipated. We spent an entire fifteen days in that wretched spot. By that point, I was despairing, I was responsible for everyone on board, but couldn't explain why my ship wouldn't move one thing that it's supposed to do so finally i got on my knees and prayed for help whereupon i heard a voice saying
5: throw maria overboard
9: i spent hours trying to figure out what this meant but the voice came to me again and said the same thing
8: i told you throw maria overboard and you will be safe
9: so now I had to find out whether we had anyone named Marion on board. Actually, that turned out to be quite easy. I just called out Maria to see if anyone would respond. A woman did indeed come up to me. She had been lying on a bunk by the gunnel. Why did you call me? She said. Maria, I told her, just how great are your sins that we must all die here because of you. When she heard that, she broke down into tears and sobbing. Recovering her composure somewhat, she told me the following. Captain, you're right. I've brought a mountain of sin onto this vessel, and it is weighing us all down. What sins have you committed?' It's not so much what sins I have committed, but that there are no sins that I haven't committed. And because of them, everyone here is going to perish. You see, I, wretch that I am, had a husband and bore him two children. When one of the children was nine and other five, my husband died and I became a widow. My neighbor was a soldier, and I wanted him to marry me, so I sent some people to talk with him about it. The soldier said he wouldn't marry a woman with children from another man. When I heard that he wouldn't have me because of the children, he, a man with whom I was by then infatuated, I murdered both of my children one night in their sleep. I then went and told him what I had done, that I was now his to have free and clear. Now I have no one, I told him, I can be yours. But when the soldier heard what I had done to the children, he said, As the Lord dwells in heaven, I will not have her. I was now in fear that my deed would become known, so I fled. As I heard this tale from the woman, I still didn't want to just throw her into the sea like that. I wanted to test the matter first. I said to her, "Look, I will get into the dinghy, and if the round eye then starts to make progress, we will know that it was my sins holding us back, for I am burdened by my own share of them." You know. I called my first mate and told him to prepare to launch the dinghy. But when I climbed down into it, neither it nor the ship made any headway. So I climbed back up to the deck and told the woman, Your turn now. She climbed down, and as soon as she settled into the dinghy, a whirlpool formed under it. It swirled around five times, and then it and she sunk straight into the depths. My ship was immediately released from the spell and shot out at sea. In three days, we then completed a journey that would otherwise have taken us fifteen.
6: Three Blind Men, read by Donu Evil is always punished by God. Let me tell you a story about that. One day, back in Alexandria, when I was studying Aristotle, I went to the house of Stephanos, the philosopher, to ask him about the treatise on the parts of animals. You've heard of Stephanos. He was later called to Constantinople by the emperor Heracleos, and he became a big name there. At that time, I was with my friend Sophronios. You know him too. Many years later, he became bishop of Jerusalem, and he was there when the godless Saracens conquered Palestine. Anyway, when we reached the philosopher's house and knocked on the door, a maid appeared at the window of the upper floor and told us to go away.
10: The master is sleeping. Come back in a bit.
6: Indeed, it was around noon when he would take his nap, and it was hot. You know how it gets in Alexandria. So I said to Sophronios, let's go wait under the Tetrapulon. This is a famous landmark in the city, a quadruple arch, roofed, that straddles the intersection. The Romans call it quadraphrones. When we arrived there, the place was completely deserted and dead quiet, in a way that you only get in the middle of a hot day. But there were three blind beggars sitting in the shade under the roof. So we sat there too, quietly reading our books. The beggars, though, were real chatty. One of them asked the others, So, how'd
11: you lose your sight?
6: Well, said the second, I used to be a sailor. On a voyage back from North Africa, I developed an inflammation in my eyes. There was no way to seek treatment, so the white spots took over my field of vision, and I've been blind ever since. What about you?
11: I used to be a glass blower, and my eyes developed an influx due to the heat of the fire, so I became blind.
6: The two of them turned to the third, who had been sitting with his head hung real low, and they asked him to tell
11: his story. All right, he finally said. If you must know, when I was a young man, I absolutely hated to work, and I became like the prodigal son, (laughs) As I had nothing to eat, I began to steal. One day, after I had committed many crimes, I was lounging about in the marketplace when I saw the funeral procession of a well-dressed man go by. I followed the cortege to spy out where they would bury him. They reached the church of St. John, (laughs) placed him in a tomb there, and left. I waited a bit and then broke into the tomb. I stripped the corpse of all that it was wearing except for one linen shroud that was wrapped tightly around his cold, dead skin. As I was leaving the tomb, carrying all my loot, my evil ways said to me, Go ahead, take the shroud too, it looks valuable. Wretched that I am, I went back and stripped the shroud off his body, leaving him naked. At that point, the dead man sat up straight on his bier and flung his arms at me. Before I could react, he dug his clammy, dead fingers into my eye sockets and with a wet, snapping sound, tore my eyes right out of my face. I dropped everything in pain and terror, and I fled from the two. So there you have it, the story of how I became blind. Sophronios nodded his head
6: towards me and said, Oh, let's go sit somewhere else.
4: Taken. Read by Marion Cruz. An excerpt from the report of the Prefect of Rome, Sextus Aurelius Victor, to our lord Flavius Theodosius eternal victor and triumphator, in the consulship year of Flavius Timasius and Flavius Promotus, 389 AD, regarding the affair of the bakery being the testimony of the freed prisoner Anastasius. Sire, I am a dead man who is petitioning you to be reinstated among the living. This sounds paradoxical, but I assure you that it is true, and many witnesses will testify to the veracity of what I am about to say. I am Flavius Anastasius, a free Roman citizen from Antioch, who held, and should by rights still hold, the position of Greek grammarian here in the Eternal City. However, for the past eleven years I have been held against my will, working as a virtual slave in the largest public bakery of the city's Regio V. In that time, lacking any knowledge of my whereabouts, my wife petitioned that my will be activated. In other words, that the court declare me deceased on the basis of Papinian's book on adulterers. She then remarried. While I cannot, it seems, restore my marriage, I am petitioning you, most clement and victorious Augustus, to restore my life, and beyond that my status, the source of my livelihood. The facts of the case are as follows. And please know how difficult it is for me to recount in dispassionate legal language the outrage and calamity that has been unjustly visited upon me. Indeed, such a crime of such magnitude and audacity is unknown in all the annals of history, and it undercuts the lawful order that you are sworn to uphold. Sire, as you know, The grain fleet that feeds this great city deposits its cargo into the public warehouses, from which it is taken to the bakeries that are situated in every regio of the city. The bakeries contain the mills and ovens that make the bread that is distributed for free on a daily basis to the citizens, or at least to those among them, such as myself, who have a ration token. In some places, such as in Regio 5, The mill and ovens are vast underground installations, whereas the distribution point is above ground in a corner tavern. It happened that day, so many years ago, that I was in Reggio 5 on some personal business. I never went to that neighborhood otherwise, but I thought, on the way back, that I could pick up my allotted bread from the bakery in question and take it home across town from there. So I went inside. Long have I rued that decision. How much of one's life can be changed forever by such a trivial twist of fate? The bakery was empty inside, except for the man at the window, and there was no line. When I went up to him and presented my token, he looked around, which I thought was odd, and then pulled a lever on the other side of the counter. Suddenly, the floor on which I was standing disappeared, or rather dropped away, and before I could even cry out, I found myself sliding down a rough ramp that deposited me, not too gently, onto a pile of hay. When I looked up, I knew I was in Hades, and briefly believed myself to be dead. There were no windows but only a great fire that fueled the ovens. It cast ominous shadows through the vast space which was taken up with the mills, noisy, creaking contraptions, and those who worked them, who were filthy and bedraggled, lacking the will to live beyond the routine task to which they were chained. I was reminded of the shades whom Odysseus encountered in the underworld. Immediately, a large man took hold of me, hit me a few times, and slapped chains onto me too. My august ruler, that has been my life for the past eleven years. Every day of every month of every year since then I have done nothing but grind flour, knead dough, and operate the ovens, all to feed the free citizens of Rome, of whom I am one. They gave us bread, which was easy enough, and occasionally vegetable slops from the tavern above, which was run by the same scoundrels. To entrap their victims for the bakery, they also operated a brothel on the same premises upstairs, so that whether you went to the tavern for refreshment or food or lust, you were dropped through their contrivance into the hell below. There was no way to escape, as the bakery pit could be accessed only by a single metal door which they guarded carefully. The bread was hauled up to the ground floor in baskets via a pulley which offered no means of egress for a human being assuming I could even be called human by that point. We were not allowed to bathe or to cut our hair or beards, and they would bring us ill-fitting, cast-off clothes only infrequently. Our water was provided by a pipe that illegally tapped into the public aqueduct. We drank what came in one end, while the other end took out our waste. I cannot say what things ended up in the dough. We were not allowed to talk, only to work and will be whipped by the two guards for any infractions, or for failure to produce enough bread. But what was there after all that we could say to each other? After a while our minds were shut down by the repetitive work, the creaking of the machines and the moans of the condemned took the place of any thoughts that I may once have had. How was I released, you might ask? You, sire, were in fact the cause of my salvation. One day their victim was one of your soldiers, who came with you when you destroyed the tyrant. His name was Heraclius. He came falling down through the chute. I cannot say why he was visiting the tavern. And when the guard went to pick him up, this soldier calmly pulled a long dagger out from a sheath strapped to his back and put it right through the other man's neck without saying a word or making any kind of exclamation. When the other guard approached him with a whip, he made short work of him, too, leaving him to bleed out on the floor in agony. Without so much as sparing us a glance, he probably thought us to be public slaves, he took the keys from the slain guard, unlocked the door, and went upstairs, where he disemboweled the man operating the trapdoor. He then reported the matter to his superiors, who sent a team to investigate. They found us and freed us. Sire, your army is not merely free the entire West from the tyranny of that man, but also me, your humble servant, from the most undeserving servitude. I therefore ask you to extend your mercy even further, and restore me fully back to life by revoking the finding of decease that was issued by the court.
10: possessorix. Now that we've gotten the pleasantries out of the way, I want to get down to business. As you know, I'm investigating the nature of demons, and I was told by our mutual friend that you've recently had a revealing experience in that regard. Can you tell me more about it? Actually, the experience happened to my wife. I was merely an onlooker. Do you want to hear it directly from her? No, no, there's no reason to involve women in this. This is a scientific study, not gossip. And I want my data to be accurate. So please proceed with your story. Well, sir, my wife is in all respects a virtuous woman, but she experiences exceedingly difficult childbirths and suffers from a number of medical conditions. The last time she was in labor, she was having a hard time of it and was in great pain at the limits of her endurance, in fact. She was tearing up her bedgown and speaking in some barbarian language. This tongue was unknown to anyone there, and it was not a language that she'd ever spoken before. No one knew what to do to alleviate her distress. But some of the women had an idea. I tell you, they are a clever and inventive lot and quite good at finding solutions to problems. You may want to revise your view of them. Anyway, they brought in this foreign man. He was very old, bald, with extremely wrinkled skin that had been burned almost black by the sun. He was holding a drawn sword and stood right next to the bed, feigning great anger at my wife, yelling and insulting her loudly in his own native language, for he happened to be an Armenian. And she replied to him in the same language. At first she grew bold and sitting up on the bed gave him as good as she got. But as the barbarian began to pile one exorcism on top of the other and threatened to strike her with the sword, shouting in a very loud voice, my wife shrank back, started to shake in fear, spoke more softly, and finally fell asleep. We were in shock, not that she had raged so terribly, because that's typical of her, but that she'd done so in Armenian. As far as I know, she'd never so much as seen an Armenian in her life before. I tell you, she's a virtuous woman and has never bothered with anything outside her domestic chores. It's all kitchen work and weaving for her, that's what I always say. Well, did you afterward ask whether she remembered what happened? Oh yes, when she came to her senses, I asked her what had happened to her and whether she could remember any of it. She said that she did. As she lay there on the bed, she saw a demonic specter approach her, floating slowly in the air, and no one else could see it. It had the shape of a woman, and its hair was long and loose, floating languidly in the air around it. Its approach was slow, but when my wife fell back into the bed in terror, the specter entered her, and after that she could remember nothing at all. This is quite fascinating, thank you. There are two details in particular that interest me, and I want to make sure that I've got them right. Did you say that the language was Armenian? How do you know that if you don't speak Armenian? And was your wife quite sure that the demon appeared in female form? Yes, that's right. It looked like a floating evil woman to her. And we know that it was Armenian because the old man said that it was his native language and he recognized it right away. Why is that important? It is indeed perplexing. Why would a demon use the Armenian language? Can we really believe that some demons speak Greek, others Arabic or Persian or Syriac, as the tribes of men do? Are demons divided into nationalities? It doesn't make sense. And yet, in my research, I've often encountered similar cases where a possessed man spoke in a language that he'd never before known or even heard. Moreover, why do demons speak human languages at all? They don't need them in order to communicate with each other, so where do they learn them? But I have a theory about this. Just as the angels are appointed to watch over individuals or separate nations, so too the demons, and as a result, they learn the language of the people over whom they are appointed, either to guard or to corrupt. I think that the demons who speak Greek learned the language from the rites and incantations spoken to them by their Greek worshippers, and so on with the other peoples of the earth. Your wife must have encountered a demon who learned human speech among the Armenians. And now that our empire has encroached on the Armenian principalities, we've let their old demons in too. Oh, that sounds like a plausible explanation. But I also can't understand why a demon, who can't be hurt by mortal weapons, cringed from an old man waving a sword at it. What are they afraid of, that they shrink back in fear from a mere mortal man? That too is a good question. As your family does not speak Armenian, we don't know exactly what the old man was saying to the demon. Exorcists usually invoke the power of the living God and use words that remind the demons of the power that our Lord Christ wields over them. Remember, demons may seem fierce and horrific to us, but in truth they're cowards, for they have no power whatever in the face of God, and God is on our side. They're like bullies who back off as soon as someone challenges them. The sword probably didn't scare them. That was used by the old man to give himself courage and swagger. In reality. What scares the demons is the recollection of the power of God, which is angry words that them invoked. These airy demons have no real power. It's all illusion, smoke and mirrors, and phantasm. They take over our bodies because we're weak and afraid, and we let them because we think they're more powerful than they really are. But it's all an illusion, easily dispelled by real power, and there's only one real power in this world and the next. Well, I have to say that I've learned more from you than you from me. This has been most illuminating. I'm not sure whether I'll convey all of this to my wife for fear of distressing her more, but I do have one more question, if you don't mind. Of course, what is it? Why did it have a female form? (laughs) That, good sir, is probably the strangest aspect of all. Are demons divided into male and female like the creatures of the earth? Well, I personally doubt it. On this matter, I once consulted with a wise man, Marcos, a hermit of the Chersonese, the one near Greece, who had many varied experiences with demons during the long course of his ascetic career. You could call him an expert on demons. He had some ideas about this very matter. One is that, of course, the demons don't have biological sex. They're not living creatures. What they do instead is take on the form of the person they're visiting. Think of them like clouds, which assume manifold shapes that in turn appear differently to different people. One person looking at a cloud sees a bear, while another sees an elephant, and so on. Each person sees something different. These forms, however, are not essential aspects of their true nature. They are subjective phantasms of the mind. But Marcos said that there were times when he was convinced that the demons are subject to animal passions, and have all the equipment with which to fulfill them. Some of them, he said, are able to produce sperm and even offspring. No, I said, I find it impossible to believe that they have genitals. Not genitals as such, he hastened to explain, but they're capable of making some kind of excretion. In the same way, they don't have mouths like we do, but they do take nourishment from our breath and arteries, from some humidity itself and others from the liquid in there. Think of them like sponges that suck up our life force in that way. And from that, they are then able to excrete their own reproductive emissions. That's why, if I were you, I would keep a watchful eye on your wife and newborn child.
4: The Vavutsicarios, read by Marion Cruz. The Vavutsicarios has entered our lives for the worse, I might add, from all that Hellenic pagan nonsense. There's a nocturnal female demon called Vavo, who is mentioned somewhere in the Orphic poems, long of body and with only a shadowy existence. Porfirios, the philosopher, says that the Etruscans, they were a race of northern barbarians, used to encounter many such nocturnal phantasms. At night, they were on fire but during the day the people would find their charred bodies, obscure and insubstantial, like the webs of a spider. The Vavuzikarios was invented by the masses based on this Vavo. Belief in it does not predominate in some part of our life or another, it is rather the most cowardly of people who tend to fantasize about this demon. I too know a pathetic little man, mean in his soul, but a tremendous babbler. These phantasms appear to him not only at night, but also during the day. He would see what was not there, like when Orestes saw the Eumenides, and he would invent what was non existent. He would go out a bit at night, but then he would freak out and head right back and describe to many what this non existence of Utsikarios looked like. This is the result of a common disorder that we all share, I mean of the body and of the soul. For the soul may be disturbed by an innate disorder and the power of the eyes to see may accordingly be weakened, and they may fail to emit beams of light in a clear enough way. Thus, what people are experiencing on the inside becomes what they think they see on the outside. And so they believe that their disorder is a demon, and they call it that. It is no surprise, during the days when we celebrate the birth of Christ and his holy baptism, that people interpret their experiences as a demon. For in those days, They are visiting each other all the time at night in order to party, and so they experience those disorders which give rise to the impression of demonic visitation.
10: The Gello Gello is the infamous name of a female monster that has been notorious since ancient times. It's neither some species of demon, nor a human being that, in a sudden transformation, turns itself into a ravenous beast. For this kind of change of one's essential nature is ruled out by all philosophers. No beast was ever turned into a man, nor a man into a beast, nor even, for that matter, into a demon or an angel. We know the names of many types of demons and their powers, and yet I've never encountered the name of Gelo in the books about them whether in the books that were written by real scholars or in the sophistries of Porphyrios. An apocryphal book revealed to me that the name is of Hebrew origin. The author of that book makes Solomon the protagonist of his story, and in the guise of a work of fiction, he makes him recite the names of the demons and their respective activities. According to him, the gello is a kind of power that is hostile to generation and coming into being. He says it is she who causes embryos to die and the womb to slide out of position. She's allowed one year in which to cause these deaths. And after that, Adrastia limits her power. But the belief that prevails today attributes this power to old women. This power agitates them and entirely unseen enters into infants and dwells in them. Specifically, it causes old women to lactate and breastfeed the infants but then it absorbs all the liquid sh- that should be going to the babies. That is why midwives call infants that wither away "gallow-fed." This too is an affliction suffered especially by newborns, just like the one that many call children's illness. But the latter is an acute blockage that occurs when the membranes of the brain suffer from a surfeit of liquid whereas this one is a colloquiescence of the intestines that is caused by deprivation. The baby's guts are deprived of proper solidity and sink down, and this leads to the infant's death.
3: Second Chance Read by Brian Swain The following extraordinary event occurred in the days of Nikitas the Patrician in the 610s A.D. in the city of Carthage in North Africa. There was a soldier of the imperial army who lived in sin. When the region experienced an outbreak of plague, he was alarmed and moved with his wife to a small suburb outside the city. But, tempted by the devil who always resents the fact that human beings have access to divine salvation. The soldier there had a sexual affair with the wife of a local farmer. And after a few days, he was stricken ill with the bubos of the plague, and he died. There was a monastery about a mile away from the suburb. His wife now went there and begged the monks to come and retrieve his body, which they did they buried it by the church around three o'clock. At around nine o'clock, as they were chanting in the church, they heard a voice coming as if from a deep well, and it said, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. They followed the sound of the voice, and it led them to the soldier's grave. When they opened it, they realized that the voice was indeed coming from him. Quickly, they brought him out, and unwound his shroud and bandages. They then questioned him, for they wanted to know what had happened, what he had seen. But all he could do was lament his state. And so they brought him to Thalassios, a famous priest and scholar in North Africa. They brought the soldier to him and explained what had happened. That great man then stayed with him for three days, comforting and consoling him when the soldier was able to speak again on the fourth day, because his lamentations had subsided. Thalassios gently asked him to recount what had happened. The soldier then said the following, weeping the whole time. As soon as I died, I saw some black figures standing near me. Merely the sight of them was the worst part of the full punishment for my sins yet to come. They caused the soul to shudder and shrink into itself. As they stood by me, I then saw two beautiful youths approaching, and merely the sight of them caused my soul to jump out into their hands. We then took flight together and went up into the air, until we reached what was a kind of checkpoint that was guarding the ascent. Each checkpoint specialized in reviewing a different kind of sin, one for lying, another for envy, a third for pride, and so on through all of the vices and passions. The checkpoints were run by what seemed to be tax accountants in the sky. When I was detained at one, they would heap up my relevant sins into the scales that they operated, and the youths who were with me would counterbalance it with my good deeds, and then we would move on to the next one. In this way, we moved up the series of checkpoints. But all of my good deeds were exhausted by the time we approached the gates of heaven. Here stood the checkpoint for fornication, and its operators grabbed hold of me. Onto their scales they heaped all of the sins of the flesh that I had committed since the age of twelve. At this point, my guides intervened on my behalf, saying, God has forgiven all of the sins of the body that he committed in the city, for he renounced them. And left the city. But my accuser said to them, After he left the city and went to the suburb, he then committed adultery with the farmer's wife. When the angels heard this, they had no good deeds of mine with which to counterbalance it, so they abandoned me and departed. I now fell back into the hands of those black figures, who struck me and drove me back down to earth. As we approached, The earth itself split open, and we flew into some narrow, dark passages, filthy channels that reeked, until we entered the abyss in the prisons of Hades. Here, the souls of sinners are locked away for eternity. I was immediately reminded of the verse in the book of Job, a land of darkness and shadow, a land of dim, eternal gloom, where there is no light and no mortal life. In that place, there was only eternal torment, endless grief, unceasing lamentation, and sleepless groaning. All there call out, woe is me, woe is me, for the rest of time. I cannot possibly express how constricted it feels. You can hardly breathe or think straight there. You can only feel agony terror, torment, in their purest forms. Human lips cannot convey an accurate sense of what one feels there, of the depths of despair. You cry out, but no one listens, for you are utterly alone. You call for mercy, but no one cares. You repent, but no one forgives. You desperately ask for help, but no one comes. I too was thrown in there with all of the rest, in those constricted dark corners that lie in the shadow of death, and there I bewailed my fate. From about three o'clock onward, but around nine o'clock, I saw the two angels who had escorted me earlier, and they were standing beside me now. I began to beg and plead with them to remove me from this hell, so that I could repent before God. They replied to me, saying, It is in vain that you plead, for none of those who are here ever leaves or is discharged from his allotted torments, at least not before the day of resurrection. But I insisted and begged them and promised that I would repent for real, genuinely and wholeheartedly, at which point one of them said to me, Will you vouch for him that he genuinely repents before God? I do so vouch, said the other. And he gave me his right hand. Taking hold of me, they lifted me up to the earth, and led me to my tomb, and back into my body. They said to me, Re-enter that from which you were parted. But I beheld my true self as a shining pearl or crystal, whereas the dead body seemed like mud, like foul-smelling, filthy clay. I was revolted and too disgusted to want to enter back into it. But they said to me, it is impossible for you to repent of your sins if you are not in the body that you inhabited when you sinned. Have faith and re enter your body, so that you may benefit others as well by telling them what you have seen and suffered. Otherwise, we can take you back to where we found you. Then indeed I saw that I had re entered my body through my mouth, and immediately. I began to call out for help. The great Thalassios urged him to eat some food, but he would not touch it. All he would do is drift from place to place inside the church, throwing himself to the ground, and, with his face pressed downward, confess his sins to God. He did this for forty days, at which point he departed, cleansed of sin, to the Lord. He had advanced knowledge of his impending death for three days.
9: Calling a Witness, read by Marvesavash. The body lay on the ground outside the hermit's hut. It looked as if it had been dumped there but its one arm was clearly extended toward the hut, as if to point in death to the guilty party. The hermit, a shriveled old man, was on his knees praying as the crowd howled for him to punish. But they had not yet rushed to carry out their version of justice, for they had summoned the commerciaries from the market to inspect the scene first. He was the only person standing in the open space around the body and the hermit in front of the entrance to the hut. This was not his job. He was the imperial assessor of taxes on trade in this border town, but he was the first person in uniform that they had found. Still, the scene seemed wrong to him, not least the men in the crowd shouting, Murderer! Dig up his bones and hang him! at the hermit. The Comerciarius had developed a thick skin for people's anger. He surveyed the scene calmly. The victim had been stabbed many times in the back, which suggests an ambush. The pool of blood around him was already drying. He was well-dressed, which made the taxman wonder what he had been doing on this edge of the town, which faced nothing but desert assuming that he had been killed here in the first place. Upon closer inspection, the hem of his tunic had been opened at the bottom, meaning that he had been robbed. No one else seemed to have noticed this. Moreover, the cut of the tunic was foreign, Armenian most likely. He had seen the likes of it in the north when he had been posted there years ago. So... A foreign merchant, wrapping up his business here, was ambushed, killed, and robbed, and his body dumped in front of a hermit's hut. It was unlikely that the hermit had done it. Looking over at him, the taxman doubted that mumbling old man had the strength to do it. Moreover, he lacked any reason to do so. Men who spent decades praying in decrepit huts do not suddenly develop a thirst for coin. From the looks of him, he was Egyptian, which explained why some of the townspeople had decided that he was guilty. Of all the emperor's subjects, none were less loved than the Egyptians, save only the Isaurians. It would be a pity for this harmless hermit to be punished for a murder he didn't commit, but justice required it. The town relied on trade, and so did his job and the imperial treasury. Foreign merchants needed to know that murderers were not tolerated in the domains of Romans. He would summon the authorities to arrest the hermit. Beyond that, it was not in his hands. As he turned to depart, the hermit amid a long shriek which resolved itself into the name of Christ. The hermit crawled over the body and commanded it. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, tell us, who did this to you? Reveal the identity of your murderer. Oh no, thought the Comerciarius, not one of these sins again for he had already witnessed many would-be holy men embarrass themselves in this way. Yet suddenly, the crowd felt deadly silent as the dead man rose up at the waist in a way that no man could have done from a prone position. A woman fainted. All the dogs started barking, even those that were far away inside the town. And the children cried and ran away, pulling free of their mother's hands. The man's eyes were wide open, but completely dead. His motions were like those of a puppet. One arm was jerked out sideways and then shot out straight, pointing an accusing finger directly at a man in the crowd. One of those who had been shouting, Murder! the loudest. There was an out hush for a moment, but then some lads seized that man and quickly stripped him. On him were found many gold coins and a knife. It had been wiped, but not well, and still bore the traces of blood. The crowd rejoiced at this miracle and praised God. Some of the women approached the hermit and asked for his blessing and they gave him some bread and vegetables. The Comerciarius waited for the crowd to disperse and then spoke with the hermit. Who are you? And why do you live here? My name is Palladius, the hermit replied, but none of that is important. We live wherever people need to be reminded of the true power of God. You see, that crowd had power It was going to kill me. The murderer had power. He killed and robbed that man. And you had power, though you were not going to use it to save me, even though you knew that I was innocent. But power resides also in the dead and those who cannot speak. When God wishes to display his own power, he does so through the weak and the unlikely. I learned this lesson from my fellow Egyptian, Father Daniel. One day a young man entreated him to come his house and bless his wife, who was unable to conceive. Daniel did so, and the wife conceived and bore a baby son. But then people began to murmur that in reality the man was sterile and the true father of the child was Daniel himself. Daniel told the man to throw a party for the child and invite all his friends and neighbors. When all had feasted, Daniel took the infant in his arms, cooed at it for a little while, and then asked him, in the presence of all, Who is your daddy? The little baby pointed directly at the young man, his father, and said,
8: That man. KILLING BABY HITLER Read by Brandon Bourgeois One day, a virtuous hermit set out from his cave, with nothing but his sheepskin and some rations. He had no destination, but called upon God. Lord, reveal to me what your judgments are. He soon fell in with a monk, who was walking in the same direction, and joined him. That night they made camp by the wall of an enclosed property. After a meal of dry bread, the monk began to repair a section of the wall that had fallen down. The hermit approved of this selfless, unrewarded service. At the end of the next day they were welcomed into the house of a man who loved God and wanted to serve these virtuous men. The hermit and the monk reluctantly consented to be given some hot soup, because it enabled their host to be charitable and generous. Virtue and others must be encouraged, even if that means being a bit less strict with oneself. Their host even brought out some silver spoons, though it did not escape the hermit's notice that, at the end of the meal, the monk hid the spoons in his habit, and took them away with him the next day. This act of theft troubled him greatly, but he saw the monk throw the spoons away into a well along their path. The hermit continued to follow where the Lord was leading him. That night they stayed at the house of another man who loved Christ. When they left the next morning, He sent his son along with them, a child, to guide them out of the ravine. When they had left the house behind them, the monk suddenly throttled the child and strangled him to death before the hermit could react. He then proceeded on his way. What are you? cried the hermit after the monk. Your actions make no sense. You rebuilt that man's wall. Then you stole the other man's spoons, only to toss them away the next day. And now you kill a child. These are not the actions of man. What can I learn from this madness? This is not about you, old man, replied the monk. You see too little of reality, and nothing of what will be. Of course, you cannot understand my actions. Under the wall that I rebuilt was buried a great treasure. Had the owner, an evil man, tried to repair it, he would have found the gold and used it to harm his neighbors. As for the spoons, they would have led an otherwise pious man into pride. And stained his record with sin. And the child was destined to grow into an instrument of Satan. A killer of many innocents. And for that evil, the true piety of his father would have been forgotten. And with that, he turned on his heels and left. The hermit stood there for a long time, mystified at God's inscrutable ways. Your judgments, Lord, are like a deep abyss. Finally, he began the long journey home. This was not a path on which he
6: could follow.